So tonight is going to be the introduction to the Ten Commandments. In the weeks to come, we'll take one night for each commandment. So next week will be commandment number one, if you want to get a jump on that. But tonight, there's just some introductory things that we kind of need to just put on the table and discuss before we get too specific with the actual commandments. And so we're going to try our best to, to just kind of lay some groundwork tonight. We are going to look up some scriptures. Uh, we'll probably look up less scripture tonight than we will in coming weeks as we really dig into the text. Uh, but you will need a Bible tonight. We're going to talk about several different things. So I want to begin by asking you to just think with me about the role the Ten Commandments play in Western civilization. Okay? That does not mean just the United States of America. I just mean Western civilization. You can dial that back to different points in history. But let's just say, uh, take the Romans making Christianity the, uh, the faith of the empire and fast forward through all of their influence, through Europe, through the United States, through everywhere that, that missionaries have been sent. What is the history of the Ten Commandments in Western culture? Let me just throw a few things out at you. Uh, two great medieval rulers, in fact, some would say the greatest medieval rulers, Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the king of the Franks, the king of the Lombards. Eventually, he was the Holy Roman Emperor. And Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great was the king of Wessex, and then he became the king of the Anglo-Saxons. Both of these great medieval kings said openly and unabashedly, the basis for the laws of our empires is the law of God. Just openly, the Ten Commandments, God's law is the foundation and the basis of the laws that we're going to make in our kingdoms. Fast forward from the, the mid- medieval period up to uh, the United States and the colonies. 1636 in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The General Court of Massachusetts argued in multiple cases that the laws of the colony must be agreeable to the Word of God. Right? you got these new people coming over to a new land, and they're still connected with the old land, but they're doing new things. And the courts, as they come over and they start to put their roots down, say, look, any laws that we make have to jive with the Scriptures. We can't make any laws that don't line up with God's Word. John Adams, one of our founding fathers, said this, As much as I love and admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to enlighten and civilize the world. Moses, the great lawgiver, did more than all of their legislators and philosophers. One of our founding fathers. Think about the Supreme Court of the United States of America. That's been in the news today. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever watched in my life, if you've paid attention to it, but it's in the news. Uh, if you go to, to the Supreme Court, I've never been there. Some of you have been to D.C. and you visited this building. There's multiple places on the building where you will see uh, in, in artistic form of some, some form or fashion, Moses, the great lawgiver. And I put a few examples of it up there. You can see Moses sitting in the middle and he's got the two Ten Commandment tablets sitting up on his leg. And you look at that and you say, ah, some of you say, amen, that's the way it ought to be. Moses right there. And I'll just point out to you, before you get too excited, that right to the left of the, of the Moses guy is Confucius. He's up there. He's been up there a long time. And just to the right of Moses is a Muslim guy. So they've been up there. 
the, the guys who carved that and put it up there are saying, yes, Moses is important, but they're also acknowledging other, quote-unquote, great lawgivers from other faiths. And there's a picture on the right. You see Moses carrying uh, one of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It's interesting that the tablet he's carrying actually has Hebrew engraved on it, and he is carrying the second table of the Ten Commandments in that relief. He is not carrying the tablet that says you will have no God but the Lord. You will not worship idols. You will not take his name in vain. But he's carrying the other tablet that says don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet. But it's up there. And you see reference to Moses and the influence of the Ten Commandments. How about Alan Dershowitz, Harvard Law professor? Here's a quote from him. He says the Ten Commandments are clearly a precursor to all Western law including American law. You just add all that up. I'm I'm giving you medieval rulers all the way up to somebody who's still living. And what we're saying is the Ten Commandments have had great influence on our culture. And yet, if you pay attention to the news, we see constant battles about whether or not these commands can be displayed in public. And I'll give you a couple of interesting examples Uh, from recent years. How many of you have heard of Judge Roy Moore? He was the Supreme Justice of Alabama. You may have heard of him recently for other news that we're not going to talk about tonight, less flattering news. But before some of that stuff came out, he wanted to put up this monument, and that's the Ten Commandments monument he wanted to put up, and uh, the ACLU came in and said, no, you can't do that. you got to take it down. And he bowed up and said, no, I'm not going to do it. And it ended up in a big lawsuit. He became known as the Ten Commandments judge. And eventually, because of the lawsuit brought by the ACLU, they took the monument down, and he was ousted as the chief justice of Alabama. It didn't go well for him. And the basis of his argument was exactly what we've been saying. It didn't hold water in a legal context. But he said, look, the Ten Commandments have influenced American culture and law and faith and practice and all of it, and we should be able to display it. And in the end, the court said, no, you can't do that. Just a piece of trivia, about the same time, there was a court case in Elkhart, Indiana. Not quite as popular, but a guy named Jay Seculo, who some of you know, was the lawyer defending a Ten Commandments monument in Elkhart, Indiana. And he paid attention to what happened with Judge Moore. Seculo did not come to the court and say, look, you, you can't deny it. Moses is on the building of the Supreme Court. We've, we've used him as the basis of laws all the way back to the medieval period. It's Western civilization. You can't deny it. Do you know what he said? He said the Ten Commandment monument in question was made by Cecil B. DeMille. When he came out with the movie The Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, as promotion, advertising, he made all these monuments of the Ten Commandments, and he put them all over the country, and he was trying to gin up excitement for his movie. And Seculo said, if you take that monument down, you're taking part of American cinematic culture. You should leave it. And do you know what the court said? Leave it. Not for religious reasons, not for moral reasons, but because it has some history in the American film industry. Our goal in this study is not to try to argue that the Ten Commandments should be displayed here or we should put them in classrooms or we should put them in government buildings. Those are all worthwhile discussions and we can have them somewhere else. Our aim in this study 
is to really forget Western civilization entirely. I, I got news for you. The Ten Commandments did not come from a Westerner. They came from a guy in the Middle East. And our goal is to go all the way back to Moses. We watched the video earlier about the back half of Exodus to try to get ourselves in that time frame to start thinking along those lines. And our goal is to go all the way back. I don't care what what the, the Romans did. I don't care what Charlemagne did. I don't care what John Adams said. I don't care what Alan Dershowitz says. I don't care what all those people say. Our goal is to go back and say, what are the Ten Commandments? What do they mean? What do they say? How do they apply to our life today, 2,000 years later? Not to sort of get together and lament, well, we, we, we used to put them up in the classroom, or we used to put them up at the courthouse, or we used to put them up here or there, but to say, do we even know them? Do we even know them? And do we actually try to apply them to our life in any meaningful way at all? That's the goal of this study. And so what I want to do tonight is just lay some introductory groundwork. And I'll I'll put a picture up. We're going to start big and we're going to work our way down narrow. Okay? Those are the three ideas we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about covenant, and that's the big idea that all of this falls under. In the video we watched a minute ago, he talked about a covenant. So we're going to talk about a covenant. And then we're going to refine that a little bit, and we're going to narrow it down and say, okay, now let's talk about the law, the Torah. Let's talk about God's commands to his people. There weren't just 10 of them. There were actually 613 of them. So let's talk about the law that God gave to his people, and then we'll narrow it down a little bit more, and we'll actually talk about the Ten Commandments as we wrap up. So let's talk about covenant. When you open your Bible... You start in Genesis and you start reading through the Old Testament, you're going to come across a number of different covenants. Okay, they talked about covenant earlier. A covenant, they said, is sort of like a a contract between God and people, but it's not just a contract. There's an added element to a covenant, right? It's not just like a legal agreement and both parties sign it. In a covenant, it's more than a business arrangement, it's a personal relationship. I'm entering into something with you that is going to be binding, not just on a legal level, but on a personal level with you and me. And so you read about a couple of different covenants. You read God makes a covenant with Adam, then God makes a covenant with Noah, and then he makes a covenant with Abraham, and then makes one with Moses and the people, and then later he's going to make one with David. So God's making all these different covenants. He's entering into all these different relationships, okay? And another interesting thing you see when you're reading through the, through the Old Testament is there's different periods, there's different times when the people renew the covenant. It's not that they're making a covenant with God, but they sort of renew their side of the agreement. And so uh, Joshua does this when he leads the people in. They have a covenant renewal, and they say, okay, let's hit the timeout button. And let's just go back and remember who we are as God's people and what he's promised to do for us and what we're supposed to do for him. Solomon does the same thing when he builds the temple. There's a covenant renewal. Josiah does it. Nehemiah does it. Ezra uh, helps Nehemiah. All these renewals where these people are coming together and they're saying, this is what God has promised to do. He's entered into this relationship. And these are the obligations that he's placed on us. One thing you've got to understand about covenants in the Old Testament They're very one-sided. God doesn't show up and appear to Abraham one day and say, Hey, I'm the Lord. Nice to meet you. I got a proposal for you. What if 
we did this, this, and this, and we kind of got together on this deal. God doesn't show up to David later and say, oh, David, what, I don't know, you're a pretty good guy. Maybe, maybe we can work something out here. When God shows up and makes a covenant with somebody, he simply shows up and he says to them, you and I are now in a covenant. He's not asking you to sign. He's not asking you to nod an agreement or to give a vote. He's just telling you, you and me are now in a covenant relationship. I am making a covenant to you. It's not based on anything that you have done. It's based on what I am promising to do for you. And there's several things you see in these covenants. We'll work through these on your outline. Number one, the terms of the covenant reveal the character of the one making the covenant. When you read about the terms, what God says he's going to do and what he asks these people to do in response, it tells you something about God's character. We understand this on a national level. Before we get specific on the Ten Commandments, you understand that the laws of our country reveal something about us as a nation, what we value and what we think is important. For example, there are laws that if you want to build a new building where the public is going to be able to come in, you have to make certain accommodations for handicapped people. They don't say, we would like for you to consider this. They say, you got to do it. And that tells you something about us as a nation. What it tells you is that we think those people are valuable. We want to include them in everyday life. We don't want them to be excluded from things. We don't want them to be left out. And you say, yeah, we're, we're pretty good people. That's a, that's a great example. Well, it cuts the other way too. Because in the United States of America, it's legal to kill babies in the womb. And that tells you something about what we value collectively. That tells you that collectively we say your choice and your autonomy and your freedom and your ability to make any decision that you want is more valuable than the life of that unborn child. That's what our law tells you. And what I'm saying to you is that when you read God making a covenant with his people, in every instance, and our focus will be the Ten Commandments, In every instance, it tells you something about who God is. That's why we sang, I like the songs that we sang earlier. We're we're singing not about all of God's laws, but we're singing about God. And ultimately, when we read his laws, when we read his commandments, it tells us something about who he is. So we'll just run through these quickly. We won't spend too much time here, and I'll try to give you enough time to fill in all these blanks. The first commandment shows us that God is holy, right? The prohibition don't have any other gods before me, tells us, well, he's the only one. He's the only one that's worthy. So he's holy. He's unique. He's one of a kind. The second commandment reminds us that he's a spirit. We don't make an image of him. It's because he's a spirit. The third command, he's worthy of our respect and our reverence. The fourth commandment reminds us, it shows us that God is a God who works and a God who rests. It reminds us about who he is. The fifth commandment, it teaches us this idea. It reminds us that God is our father. He's not just this distant deity up there, but he's like a a father relating to his children. The sixth commandment, it shows us that God gives life. We're not to take it because it's God's to give or to take. The seventh commandment, it reminds us that God is faithful. He tells us to be faithful. Why? Because that's who he is. Eighth commandment, it reminds us that God owns all things. We don't own anything. He puts things into our 
uh, care and our responsibility, and we're stewards of those things, but ultimately those things belong to God. Ninth commandment, it reminds us that God is truth. The tenth commandment, that God's going to be our provider. We don't have to want and wish that we had more because we can rest, that he's given us enough. All of these commands, the terms of the covenant, reveal the character of the one making the covenant. And I want to point out a couple of other things just to, to get your mind thinking about how the covenant and the, co- the law and the commands teaches us about God. Okay, Think about this. The words of the covenant remind us that God has spoken to his people. God has actually spoken to his people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 33. Deuteronomy 4.33. This is about four decades after God gave his people the Ten Commandments. And Joshua is about to lead a new group of folks into the promised land. And Moses has given them one last charge. Deuteronomy 4.33. Moses is speaking to them. This is his last chance to talk to the nation. And Moses says this. Deuteronomy 4.33. Did any people ever hear the voice of of a God speaking out of the midst of fire as you have heard and still live. You heard God speak. Aaron's little calf idol couldn't do that. You could see it. You could see that idol, but you couldn't hear it because it didn't have anything to say. You see the exact same idea when Elijah is confronting the prophets of Baal. Right? They've got all their idols, their, their Baal statues, their Asherah poles, and, and they can see them. And what does Elijah say? Where is he? Why won't he answer? Maybe he's busy. Maybe you need to wake him up. Maybe he's using the restroom. And you can hear the mockery, or you can sort of assume the mockery the other direction. The people are saying, well, at least we can see Our gods, where is your God? We don't see him. They didn't see the Lord, but they heard from him that day as he sent fire on that altar. And Moses is saying to the people, I understand that you don't see him, but you do hear him. He has spoken to you. You don't have to and you don't get to dream up this God and imagine what he's like. God doesn't need you to be creative with who he is. He has spoken to you, and in speaking to you, he's told you who he is and what he's like. Next, breaking the terms of the covenant is an assault on the character of God. If each of those commands teach us something important about who God is, then breaking his rules is more than, hey, you did something you shouldn't have done. It's also, you have become the kind of person that is not like God. You have assaulted his character. He gave you that, the, the, the covenant and the, the law and the commandments so that you would know what he's like and you could be like him. Yes, you've broken a rule, but you've also become unlike God and you've assaulted his character. Next, the terms of the covenant are not going to change because God's not going to change. If it's based on what God is like, he gives us these rules to teach us what he's like. The Bible says, well, God's not going to change. And that tells us, well, the terms of the covenant, they're not going to change. So that's a few thoughts about the covenant. Now let's 
put that triangle back up here and let's just think, okay? We've talked about the covenant, this big idea. God enters into relationship with people. He sets the terms. He takes the initiative. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you, and this is what I'm asking you to be. This is who I'm asking you to be. And now let's boil it down and focus a little bit on the law. If I asked you to go through your Bible and come up with all of the Old Testament rules and laws, write them down, you'd come up with a list of some really weird stuff. You understand that? Every now and then, it seems to happen about every five years, somebody gets cute, some non-Christian gets cute, and they think they're funny, and they say, I'm going to live biblically. And they write a book about it, or they have a movie about it, or they do something to make a bunch of money. And what they mean is, I'm going to take all these rules from the left half of the book, and I'm going to try to live by every single one of them. And their intention is not to honor God. Their intention is not to try to draw closer to God. Their intention is to mock us and to mock the Scriptures and to say to you and to say to me, these rules are really ridiculous. And some of them are kind of out there when you go back and read them. How many of you over the last year celebrated the Feast of Booths by setting up a tent in your backyard for a week? Anybody? Nobody? That's in there. Once a year, don't live in your house. Take a little tent out in the back and live in it. How many of you have had bacon in the last month? Oh, out. Go to the Methodist church. And let you do whatever you want. How many of you have slaughtered a lamb this year? Nobody? Maybe some of you. I took Emma to a birthday party the other day, and we were driving over to Midland, and uh, there was a sign right by where I dropped her off that said, uh, Barbecue Goats for Sale. And I had a number right there, and I took a picture of it, and I sent it to her, and I said, Just in case you need a barbecue goat. Most of us have not slaughtered a goat or a lamb. In the last year, you say, what is the point of all of these laws? Let's listen to a, a guy named Mike Horton. This is from one of the books that I referenced earlier. From Genesis to Revelation, every figure, every story, every image, every lesson is the wrapping in which we find God's gift, Jesus Christ, even in the Ten Commandments. That's pretty good guidance to say, what do I do with all of these laws? Horton is saying to you, when you look back in these Old Covenant laws, these Old Testament laws, and you think, what do I do with all of these? The mindset that you've got to approach is somewhere, somehow, this is pointing me to Jesus. And if you come with that mindset, you're going to end up in a completely different place than living some preposterous, ridiculous life, laughing at the commands, trying to prove how silly they are. And you're going to understand God gave these commands to point us to Jesus. So here's a few thoughts on your notes about the law. Like all of Scripture, the law was intended to point us to Jesus. God gave his people these words so that they would be looking for the Messiah. And every week in this study, when we talk about each and every one of the Ten Commandments, we're going to ask ourselves the question, how in the world does this get me to Jesus? It's not just going to be a, a, a several-week-long study of how can I be a better person, but it's going to be how can this command point me and move me to Jesus. And so I, I want to look up these verses. Take your Bible and look over in the New Testament. Let's listen to what Jesus had to say about the whole thing. 
Gospel of John chapter 5, Jesus is arguing with a group of men who don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. John 5, verse 39, Jesus says to these men, these skeptics, he says, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way to Malachi. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's actually they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. You understand, when Jesus said that, they weren't carrying around completed New Testaments. They had what we call Old Testaments. And Jesus says, look, you got all these Bible studies. You got an Awana program to memorize verses. You teach your kids all these things to to learn all the Ten Commandments, all this stuff. You're searching the Scriptures. You don't even realize that the Scriptures are pointing you to me. If Jesus said that, and we take Jesus at his word, and we believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about, when we go back and search the Scriptures, we've got to go with the mindset, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this point me to Jesus? Look at the Gospel of Luke. Flip backwards to the left. Luke 24. This is Jesus, and he's talking with some of the disciples. He's already died. He's been raised from the dead, and he's sort of in this appearing, and he's not there all the time, but he's with them some of the time. He's talking to them. They're touching him. They're interacting with him. And look what Jesus says in Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, they didn't have New Testaments to flip through. Jesus is saying, look, I told you guys this before I ever died, before the resurrection, before any of it, that everything written in the law, everything written in the prophets, everything written in the Psalms, about me had to be fulfilled. If Jesus says that, when you and I go back and study those books, we've got to say, what is he talking about? What is it here? What do we find here? What do we read here that is needing to be fulfilled in the life and the ministry and the death of Jesus? So that moves us to the next idea on your notes. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. Here's how this gets sort of played out on a popular level sometimes. You've probably heard people talk like this. The Old Testament, man, God seems angry in the Old Testament. He seems cranky and he's got all these rules and he's killing people and he's telling people to kill people and eh, it's kind of icky. You get to the New Testament and we've got this Jesus guy and he seems like a really fun guy to hang out with and he seems way more laid back and way more relaxed And man, I'm glad we don't live back then when God was like that. And now we live, you know, things are way more chill. That's sort of a popular level description of of what you may hear sometimes. One of the pastors of the largest churches in the United States over the last couple of months said, look, we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. He's all about Jesus. Jesus. But he says, I don't really have any use for the Old Testament. 
because it's weird stories and it doesn't make a lot of sense and I can't piece it all together and there's some embarrassing stuff back there and I'd rather not deal with it. Let's unhitch that and let's just talk about Jesus. This, this idea that there's two different gods portrayed in the Old and the New Testament. And Jesus shows up and he says, whoa, 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 I don't want you to rip up your Old Testaments. I want you to go back and read them again. They're talking about me. You search the scriptures, they're all about me. The law and the prophets and the Psalms, they're all testifying to me. He doesn't want us to unhitch it. He wants us to go back and study it deeper. Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. We don't need to look up Matthew 5.17 because that's exactly what it says. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is about to say some very challenging things about the law. He's going to make some of the people in the, in the audience uncomfortable. And he starts out saying, I'm not here to abolish it. I'm not here to rip it up. I'm here to fulfill it. The law was not the end. The law was a means pointing to me. And I'm the end. So what does it mean Jesus came to fulfill the law? Here's, here's what I think is the best way, the most helpful way to make sense of this. Many scholars see a threefold division within the law. Sort of three categories of law, if you want to think about it that way. You have moral laws. And then you have ceremonial laws. And then you have civil laws. And we'll just work through that list backwards. Okay? Civil laws. Those are the laws in the Old Testament you come across that talk about how Israel was supposed to function as a nation, how they were supposed to operate, sort of the day-to-day, like the, the constitution for the nation of Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, These civil laws that tell you how life is supposed to work. And from time to time, you have people that say, look, these are laws in the Bible. The Bible never changes. We need to take these laws, these civil laws, those should be our laws. Right? This is sort of like the Christian equivalent of the Muslims who argue for Sharia law. You've got these Muslims that say, well, we don't want any secular laws. We just want laws from the Quran. That's all the law that we need. And you have some Christians who make the exact same argument. They say, look, get rid of the government. All we need is to go back to these laws. There's just one problem with that. And the problem is when people ask Jesus about how they should interact with Old Testament laws and civil laws, Jesus said, look, you need to give to Caesar what's Caesar and you need to give to God what's God's. He didn't say tell Caesar to take a hike. He said if Caesar tells you to pay your taxes, pay your taxes. It's his face on the coin, right? So give it to him. And the Apostle Paul came along a little while later inspired by the Holy Spirit No less true than what Jesus said in the red-letter parts of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, look, you need to respect your governing authorities. And some of us think, yeah, as long as the right party is in power, I'm going to respect them. And if it's the other party, I'm going to post hateful stuff on Facebook about them and laugh at them and be mean to them and yell at their confirmation hearing or do this or do that. Listen, when Paul said that, He was talking about a man who was immoral, wicked, corrupt, Caesar, Nero, the worst of the worst. And Paul said, look, God put those people in power. Respect those people. Obey those people. Do what they tell you to do. If they tell you to disobey God, then yes, obey God over them. But submit to the governing authorities, he said. Respect them. 
Don't defy them. Don't be hateful about them, but respect those people. So you see this shift, okay? doesn't mean we take those laws and we rip them out of our Bible, but we listen to Jesus and we listen to Paul and we say, okay, these were the laws where Israel was the nation and God was working through these people, but now God is working through his church. We're not a nation state, we're a church. And the instructions from Jesus, the one who came to fulfill the law, and Paul is... Submit to the governing authorities. Not trying to go back and recreate ancient Israel, but we want to submit to the governing authorities as much as we can. Let's talk about the ceremonial laws. All sorts of laws in the Old Testament about offering sacrifices, about foods you could eat or you could not eat, laws about things that make you clean and make you unclean, and you say, what do I do with all those laws? Like, can I really not eat uh, this kind of fish or that kind of shellfish, and can I really not touch this or touch that. I mean, what do we do with all those? Well, again, you listen to Jesus and you listen to the apostles. And Jesus says things like this. Look, in the new covenant, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. It's not all the external things that you're so worried about. Those things served a purpose for a time to keep you distinct from all the other nations. But let's be honest, it's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. And the gospel writer says that when Jesus said that, he declared all foods clean. And you read the same thing in Acts. Peter sees this vision and God lets it down and there's all these unclean animals. And he says, Peter, eat. Peter freaks out and says, I can't do that. That's against the law. And God says, look, that was a a time, that was a season where I was keeping you separate as a people. But I don't want you to call that unclean anymore. And I want you to eat. I want you to go share the gospel with that Gentile guy down the road. You see things like uh, the, the sacrificial laws, slaughtering these animals. You see things in the book of Hebrews that says, look, Jesus, Jesus is the true sacrifice. Uh, the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sins. Jesus died to take away sins. All of those sacrifices were just pointing you forward to what you really needed in Jesus. They were reminding you of God's holiness and reminding you of your sin and pointing you to your need for a mediator. And now that he's come, those old things are gone. We don't continue to do those things. So say the ceremonial law, he's fulfilled that. Then you come to the moral law. Okay, Let's just say the Ten Commandments, the do's and the don'ts on a moral level. And many of these things are repeated in the New Testament. In fact, all of the Ten Commandments find some sort of confirmation or repetition in the New Testament. And we would say these things are still binding on us as Christians today. So one last level of this triangle. Okay, We've talked about the covenant. We've talked about the law as a whole. And now let's move to the moral law, to the Ten Commandments. There's a word you'll come across sometimes. The word is decalogue, just to sort of show you where that comes from. Exodus 34, 28 refers to the Ten Commandments as ten words. It's just sort of a a shorthand way of talking about the Ten Commandments. And in Greek, ten words is dekalogoi, dekalog, and so we're talking about the dekalog here. And uh, let's look at what Mark Rooker has to say about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been viewed within Judaism as the essence of the Torah. Many have noted that all 613 laws of the Torah correspond to the 613 letters. This is in Hebrew, not English. 613 letters of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. 
Hence, the Decalogue appears to represent the embodiment of all the laws and the statutes of the Pentateuch. At a previous church, I had a friend who was very much into Bible numbers and finding symbolism in these numbers. And this person would often come to me with the wildest combinations of numbers and symbols and meanings and they would be so excited and they would say, look, I've, I've cracked this code, I've figured this out, I've, these numbers, this and this, and it represents this. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And I would just sort of say, I don't think that's right. I love you. I think you love Jesus, but I think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And it didn't stop her one bit from coming back the next week and saying, aha, look what I've pieced together. I've done my Bible math. So I don't, I don't get too wacky on numbers and the symbolism and some of the stuff that, that you may find at, uh, at certain books and Christian bookstores. But 613 laws in the Torah, 613 letters in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Maybe you think I'm crazy. Maybe you think Mark Rooker's crazy. But I think that's pretty good myself. And I think it's a pretty good picture of God saying to us, Look, I've given you this law. And if you want to distill it down to its essence, if you want to know the heart of it, the summary of it, here it is in these ten words, in this Decalogue. So the Ten Commandments are a summary of the law. And look, even if you think the 613 stuff is kind of silly and you say, ah, that's just, you know, what a coincidence. You could have come up with any number. Who knows? Think about what Jesus said when people came to him and they said, tell us the greatest law. What is the most important law? Which one of the Ten Commandments did Jesus quote? None of them. He didn't quote Exodus 20, or he didn't quote the second occurrence of them in Deuteronomy 5. He actually quoted Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And he said, the first is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6. And the second, Leviticus 19, he actually quoted the book of Leviticus. Some of you have never read it in your life. Jesus quoted it and said the second most important commandment is right there in Leviticus 19, and it's love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, I thought Jesus made that up. No, he pulled it right out of the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. You say, I thought in the Old Testament it was every man for himself. Just kill him, knock him down, beat him over the head. No, it's right there in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when you see Jesus say, look, you love God more than anything, and you love your neighbor, he didn't quote one of the Ten Commandments, but he did show you the pattern within the Ten Commandments. And the pattern is what some scholars call the two tables. The first table addresses our obligation towards God. Love God, right? No other gods before him. No idols. Don't take his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day. And then the second table talks about our obligation towards our neighbor, towards other people. You Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And what Jesus says in loving God and loving your neighbor fits with the pattern of the Ten Commandments. First come these commands that center on what do we owe God? And then come a bunch of commands that center on what do we owe 
to our neighbor. So the Ten Commandments is a good summary of the law. So what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Let me give you three thoughts and we'll wrap it up. These are not mine. I didn't dream these up. I didn't think these up. Uh, These three suggestions, how Christians use the law, how Christians use the Ten Commandments, this goes all the way back to the Reformers, all the way back to the early church fathers. This is longstanding tradition, okay? Use number one, what do we do with them? The law shows us our sin, and it points us to Jesus. In this study, over the next several weeks, if you come away from each of these nights, each of these commandments, thinking, well, I'm doing pretty good on that one. I don't think you've listened to what we're talking about. And I don't think you're listening to the command. Because when you come to these commands and you slow down and you think about what God is actually asking of his people, what he wants us to do, what he wants us to not do, who he wants us to be, and you examine yourself in light of that, you're going to come away and say, Ugh. I don't, I don't do very good on command number one. And then you're going to come back the next week and you're going to say, well, I'm lousy at that one too. And then week three, you're going to say, well, great, I'm 0 for 3. I struck out. Week four, week five, every week you're going to come away saying, I, I've broken that command. I've broken that command today. I've broken that command since I've been in this room. That's the point. That's one of the reasons God gave us his law. So that we hold up the mirror of his word and we see ourselves in light of it. And his law, right, these, these terms of the covenant, they're based on God's character. We say, this is who God is and this is what God wants me to be. I don't measure up to that. And not that we just sit and wallow in self-pity and despair, but that we say, I don't measure, measure up. Jesus did. And Jesus came to fix the problem of sin that stands between me and God. So the law shows us our sin. It points us to Jesus. Number two, it undergirds our laws and it restrains evil. The Ten Commandments have had an incredible impact on laws throughout human history. And Paul says in the book of Romans, even those who have not received God's law have it written on their heart on a conscience level. They may not be able to quote to you commandment number eight that is do not steal. But if you take something from them, they're going to know the commandment. And they're going to say, hey, that's not yours, that's mine. Where did that knowledge come from? Paul says God gave them that knowledge. It's written on their heart. They may not be able to quote commandment seven that says don't commit adultery, but be unfaithful with their spouse and they're going to say to you, hey, you just did something wrong. That's not your spouse, that's my spouse. How do they know that? God's written it on their conscience. So these laws undergird our laws and they restrain evil. Number three, these laws show us how to please God. If they're based on his character, if they tell us what God is like, then we look at them and we say, this is, this is who God wants us to be. This is what he wants us to do. No, we don't keep them perfectly, but these are the things that we ought to strive after in our life. These are the things that the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we can obey and we can follow these things. I'll just point out to you what's not on that list. The Christian can use the law in three ways, right? Those are historic arguments from really, really smart guys. Not on that list, nowhere is the idea that Christians use the Ten Commandments 
to beat unbelievers over the head and make them feel bad about how lousy they are. Christians are going to put the Ten Commandments up so everyone else knows how good we are and how lousy they are. And sometimes in modern debates, we, talked, we started here earlier, we talked about it. Sometimes in modern debates, Christians get so defensive. Christians are sensitive people. You know that? We are so sensitive. And we get our feelings hurt so easy and we just feel like the sky is falling. And we can so quickly turn into just a bunch of whiners who want to take the Ten Commandments and just beat lost people over the head with them and say, if you would just do this, everything would be better. You haven't done it. They're not going to do it. God didn't give those laws only so that everything would be better and we could just all get along. He gave us those laws so that we could look at them and say, man, I've fallen short. I haven't measured up. I need God to do something here because I haven't lived up to my end of the bargain. And a lot of us are really good at taking the Ten Commandments and looking at secular culture and saying, huh, if only they would do that. If only they would do this. If only they understood that one. When God wants us to take those commands and look at ourselves in that mirror and say, how are you doing on command three? How are you doing on that eighth command? He wants to use it to expose our sin and to show us our need for Jesus. 